Chapter 2. The Desire to Exceed One's Programme Ah, but, someone may remark, with fine English disregard of everything except the point, what is he driving at with his 24 hours a day? Well, I've got no difficulty in living on 24 hours a day. I do all that I want to do. And I still find time to go in for newspaper competitions. Surely it's just a simple affair, knowing that one has only 24 hours a day simply to content oneself with 24 hours a day. Well, to you, my dear sir, I present my excuses and my apologies. You are precisely the man that I have been wishing to meet for about forty years. And will you kindly send me your name and address and state your charge for telling me exactly how you do it? Instead of me talking to you, you ought to be talking to me. Please come forward. That you exist, I am convinced. That I have not yet encountered you, well, that is my loss. Meanwhile, until you appear... I will continue to chat with my companions in distress, that innumerable band of souls who are haunted more or less painfully by the feeling that the years slip by and slip by and slip by and that they have not yet been able to get their lives into a proper working order. Now, if we analyse that feeling we shall perceive it to be primarily one of uneasiness, of expectation, of looking forward, of aspiration. It's a source of constant discomfort because it behaves like a skeleton at the feast of all of our enjoyments. We go to the theatre and we laugh, but between the acts it raises a skinny finger at us. We rush violently for the last train, and while we are cooling a long age on the platform waiting for the last train, it promenades its bones up and down by our side and inquires, O man, what hast thou done with thy youth? What art thou doing with thine age? Well, you may urge that this feeling of continuous looking forward, of aspiration, is part of life itself and inseparable from life itself. Well, true. But there are degrees. A man may desire to go to Mecca. His conscience tells him that he ought to go to Mecca. He fares forth, either by the aid of cooks or unassisted, and he may probably never, ever reach Mecca. He may drown before he gets to Port Said. He may perish ingloriously on the coast of the Red Sea. His desire may remain eternally frustrate. Unfulfilled aspiration may always trouble him. But he will not be tormented in the same way as the man who, desiring to reach Mecca, and harried by the desire to reach Mecca, never leaves Brixton. It is something to have left Brixton. Most of us have not left Brixton. We've not even taken a cab to Ludgate Circus and inquired for cooks at the price of a conducted tour. And our excuse to ourselves is that there are only 24 hours in a day. If we further analyse our vague, uneasy aspiration, we shall, I think, see that it springs from a fixed idea that we 
ought to do something in addition to those things which we are loyally and morally obliged to do. We are obliged by various codes, written and unwritten, to maintain ourselves and our families, if any, in health and comfort, and to pay our debts, and to save, and to increase our prosperity by increasing our efficiency. Well, a task sufficiently difficult, a task for which very few of us ever achieve, a task often beyond our skill, and yet, if we succeeded in it, as we sometimes do, we are not satisfied, because the skeleton is still with us. And even when we realise that the task is beyond our skill, that our powers cannot cope with it, we feel that we should be less discontented if we gave to our powers, already overtaxed, something still further to do. And such is indeed the fact. The wish to accomplish something outside their formal programme is common to all men who, in the course of evolution, have risen past a certain level. And until an effort is made to satisfy that wish, the sense of uneasy waiting for something to start which has not yet started, will remain to disturb the peace of the soul. That wish has been called by many names. It is one form of the universal desire for knowledge— It's so strong that men whose lives, their whole lives, have been given to the systematic acquirement of knowledge, have been driven to it by to overstep the limits of their programme in search of still more knowledge. Given Herbert Spencer, even he, in my opinion, the greatest mind that ever lived, was often forced by it into agreeable little backwaters of inquiry. I imagine that in the majority of people who are conscious of the wish to live, that is to say, people who have intellectual curiosity. The aspiration to exceed formal programmes takes a literary shape. They would like to embark on a course of reading. Decidedly, the British people are becoming more and more literary. But I would point out that literature by no means comprises the whole field of knowledge, that a disturbing thirst to improve oneself, to increase one's knowledge, may well be slaked quite apart from literature. And with the various ways of slaking I shall deal later, but here I merely point out to those who have no natural sympathy with literature that literature is not the only well. Mm. 